Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week is the arrival of the Omicron variant to the United States. We still have very few cases here in the States, but there's still so much we don't know about Omicron, the new COVID variant. We don't know if it's more transmissible, and most importantly, we don't know if it causes more severe illness. Preliminary observations show it could cause milder infections. If so, that could be good news as we get on our way to the virus becoming endemic. The bottom line is that it's going to take a couple weeks before we have enough data to know what's going on. And for all of that, we'll speak to Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Some South African physicians who are actually seeing this have said that the patients they've seen are generally mild cases. And that's true that as of now, but I think a lot of experts would say like, you know, we need to see a lot more patients to get any sense of what, if whether the severity of symptoms broadly changes. And so, yeah, and we need a little bit more time to see, uh, you know, the trends in hospitalizations and deaths because COVID for a lot of people is a mild illness. And so it could just be that these are the patients they're seeing. The patients that the South African physicians have reported seeing have been generally younger who are, as we all know, are, are more likely to have milder illness. So there's a couple other factors at play here. And we just need to see, I think, more patient data and a little bit more time to know. Tell me about the difficulties with all that, because let's say you get COVID, you get a test, it's confirmed, you know, for people that have mild cases are probably going to stay home. Who knows if that goes on to get sequenced by a lab somewhere. Maybe some people just get sick and stay home and never see a doctor or get tested, you know, so it's so tough to pit the two, you know, the, the variants against each other and see which one is much more severe. Right, because so, you know, a virus, like everyone knows, is is evolving and it can influence its transmissibility. It can influence how it reacts to like our immune responses. But in theory, it can also become more or less virulent, basically cause less or worse disease on average. That's a really hard one to pick up unless, you know, if it's a dramatic change, like no one's going to the hospital or everyone's going to hospital, you'll pick that up more quickly. But if it's a subtle change, it's really hard to pick up in part because there are so many other things that influence patient outcomes. Like, you know, if you're looking in a certain area, like what is the rough age demographics of the people? Do a lot of people have underlying health conditions that make them more vulnerable to COVID? You know, what's the healthcare capacity like? And, you know, at now there's the other thing that we're seeing is that in a lot of places, there's a lot of population immunity out there, whether from vaccination or prior infections. And so that might mean that if you have that level of protection, from past exposure to the virus or from being vaccinated, maybe you can't block the infection entirely, but you're going to have mild illness. So this could be also be a relic of that because South right. Africa's had pretty s- substantial waves of COVID already. And that's the exact point, right? The, what we're seeing in South Africa with them is they have had those waves. This Omicron variant is happening in younger people. So we have yet to see how it really affects older people or people that have those comorbidities. You know, there's a lot still at play. That's why it's, you know, everybody's talking about it, but it is, you know, uh, there's no need to panic just yet. We don't know enough about it. And even with the Delta variant, when we talked about that, obviously that was responsible for some of the big waves that we just had recently. Even that one, the jury is still out on whether it caused more severe illness. Delta's biggest threat was how transmissible it was. And, and actually, transmissibility is kind of the thing that scientists worry about most because 
a more transmissible variant will cause more cases and thus more illness and death than like even a, a variant that causes just like more severe disease, like right. on an individual basis. That, but that's just a numbers um, game at that point. Yeah, exactly. But to your point, yeah, so there were some studies, and again, this just kind of goes to how hard it is to study this if it is a small difference. Like there were some studies that showed countries had higher hospitalization rates during Delta waves. And, and, you know, a lot of doctors said the patients they were seeing seemed to be getting sicker and faster with Delta. But, you know, other studies came to like to find that there were no differences between Delta and earlier waves. So it's kind of, yeah, it just kind of goes to show that like it's pretty hard to know for sure because these are difficult things to study in the environments in which these variants are spreading and in the fact that the variants are often spreading not at the same time. As I mentioned, there's still a lot yet to know about this, but let's say some of these things hold true. Let's say people are getting a much milder illness from this new Omicron variant. Could that be a good thing? Could we be on our way to this virus being endemic, something we live with, something more of a common cold rather than the pandemic that we're currently in and, and you know, high deaths and, and all that stuff? Could this be something that is a positive almost, I guess? We're moving past it now. If these cases really are mild, or if a greater percentage of them is mild, let's say, because it's probably not going to be 100%, that would be a great thing. Whether that means that the virus has changed to become just like cause milder illness, or because it would show that prior exposure to the virus or vaccination is turning this from like what can be a really serious infection into generally more of a mild infection. And that's how we kind of move, as you said, towards endemicity, as opposed to like this acute emergency that we've been in now for almost two years. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The White House also this week detailed its new strategy to fight coronavirus and keep Omicron at bay. One of the big changes is to tighten up the testing timelines for international travelers coming to the U.S. People will now have to test within a day of departure, regardless of vaccination status. The White House also has plans for testing reimbursements and more booster shots. For more on all this, we'll speak to Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So what you're seeing is a tightening of the testing timelines for travelers who are entering the U.S. from overseas. And up until now, international travelers had to test 72 hours before their departure for the U.S. And now what they have, are saying is that international travelers will have to test within a day of departure and that they will have to test regardless of vaccination status. So even fully vaccinated people will have to test. And these rules will apply to both U.S. citizens and foreign nationals and are expected to take effect early next week. So it's a way for the White House, I think, to make more stringent some of the screening that is currently in place for international travel and to try and mitigate the spread of this new variant here at home. But as you point out, it is already here. So there are also some other measures that they are taking on the domestic front, too. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to contain a virus like this. And obviously, one of the biggest methods it travels is with international travel, right? All of the variants of concern have originated in other countries. And obviously, they're getting here through that global travel that just happens all the time. So, you know, but uh, is it effective to shut down travel from certain countries? There's a lot of that's up to debate. But, you know, you have to try to act quickly and do whatever you can. You mentioned some of the other domestic things. This one might not make too many people happy, but the mask requirements when you're traveling, that's going to be extended as well. Yeah. So you know, right now we have this mask mandate that's in place 
for travel on planes, buses, trains, and also, of course, you're required to wear masks at airports and indoor bus terminals. So that was initially going to expire on January 18th, but the president announced today that they will be extending that mask mandate through mid-March. I do think it's interesting, though, because when it comes to just day-to-day life, there's a different tone you're hearing from President Biden, where he was really emphasizing that the administration is relying on existing tools. They're not imposing new mandates. And really what he did was he emphasized vaccinations and boosters. And you didn't see the kind of aggressive tone that the president had earlier in the year when we were in a different phase of the pandemic, where he was calling on state and local officials, for example, to enforce mask mandates in public commercial spaces. That's kind of missing this time around because the administration says we're in a new phase. We already have vaccines and testing. And so they don't believe that we have to go to back to some of the pandemic era restrictions that defined a lot of the uh, a lot of the past year and a half. Definitely. I mean, there's no appetite really for lockdowns again. He just wants to get the word out. The public education campaign is a big part of this. Get your vaccine, get your booster shots. They're really emphasizing that stuff. And some of the new stuff, right? Uh, They're even uh, making family mobile vaccination clinics uh, to urge families to either get that first shot, get those booster shots. Testing is a huge one because this is kind of one of those components that kind of started falling by the wayside a little bit once the vaccination push came. But they want to have people be reimbursed, at least, for the cost of at-home testing kits. This would be done uh, something done with health insurers. Yes, and that's been a big challenge for the administration because although they have uh, made more testing available, there has still been a shortage when it comes to the availability of rapid at-home tests. And there is also a widespread sense that they cost too much. They can cost $20 or more. Sometimes they're not available when you go to the local pharmacy. And so what Biden announced today is that these at-home tests, for people who have private insurance, they will be reimbursed through insurance coverage. And then for those people who do not have private insurance, which, of course, is also a sizable chunk of the population, the administration is going to try and make more of these tests available at community health centers and rural clinics and other harder-to-reach areas or areas that serve underserved communities. So, you know, I think that that's certainly something that is new because a lot of public health experts have said that, to your point, the administration kind of dropped the ball on testing, that it should be a lot more accessible than it is right now. And that's going to be a key part, again, of combating a new variant is the the ability for people, including people who are fully vaccinated, to test quickly and self-isolate if they need to isolate or take other measures if they test positive. Right. The guidance for that, uh, the testing stuff is going to be released by January 15th. From what I saw, it's not going to be retroactive or anything. So we're going to have to wait until then before reimbursements can start. So just uh, there'll be more information coming out about that one. But yeah, it's an important part just to kind of keep people in the know of what their current status is, right? So they can not go to work, not travel, all that. It's it's a a big, important component. And then, uh, as we mentioned, too, the education for Uh, more booster shots. That's another big part of it, that they want to make sure everybody can go out and get those. They do. And, you know, there have been a good number of people who have gone out to get boosters since they became available. But of course, there is still vaccine hesitancy across the board where you have some people, of course, who have not even gotten the first round of vaccines. And then you do have a drop off for people who are fully vaccinated, but don't necessarily think that they need to get a booster. And I, and I think what you saw the president emphasize is that the current, it could always change, 
But the current consensus he's got from public health officials is that the existing vaccines and boosters do provide sufficient protection against this Omicron variant. Now, the administration is talking to the vaccine manufacturers in case there are modifications that are needed to these vaccines. But right now, they believe that the best protection is to be vaccinated and boosted. And and they pointed out that the case that you saw, the first case you saw here in the U.S. and California, that individual was fully vaccinated and only experienced mild symptoms. And, you know, the person who was also um, the case that was also identified in Minnesota, uh, that 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 individual also experienced only mild symptoms. And so I think they they do believe that vaccinations are the key again. And all they can really do is push people. It also shows the kind of limitations of the presidency. Right. The president can't force people to take precautions or force people to get vaccinated. But that really is the messaging that you're seeing coming out of the administration and also just urging calm and telling people not to panic. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This week, the Supreme Court also heard arguments in the Mississippi abortion case that bans abortions after 15 weeks. There's a lot of scrutiny on what will happen with this decision, as it could overrule Roe v. Wade. There could also be a scenario where they overrule that decision while still not abolishing the constitutional right to an abortion. For more on all this, we'll speak to Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. This is the single greatest threat to abortion rights since Roe was decided in 1973. You know, we have a court that has a six to three Republican majority. The presidents who have appointed most of these justices have promised to appoint justices who overrule Roe v. who will overrule Roe v. Wade, and I'm inclined to believe them. I think that there are some questions about what the opinion will say. The court may not actually use the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, but it could still put in place all kinds of abortion rights that has the same effect as overruling Roe and. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I think that it is likely that the court is going to hand an enormous defeat to supporters of of abortion rights, potentially including explicitly overruling Roe. Now, the Mississippi law would ban abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And you make a point that the question in this is very important. The very specific question presented in this one is not should Roe v. Wade be overruled. It's about pre-viability prohibitions on abortion and whether those are constitutional or not. So that's why there could be this thing where they basically overrule it without specifically saying those words, as you mentioned. To dive down into the weeds a bit here, whenever the Supreme Court announces it's going to hear a case or at least that it's going to give it full briefing and oral argument, it also announces something called a question presented. And the question presented is the specific legal question that the court intends to resolve. The question presented in this case, like you said, is whether states are allowed to ban abortions prior to the point of viability. Viability is when the fetus can live outside of the womb. And the answer to that right now is no, they absolutely cannot. That was the holding of the court's decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that prior to viability, if you are pregnant, you have an absolute right to terminate the pregnancy. So this First of all, is the court is asking directly, should we overrule Casey? Should we overrule this part of Casey, which says that prior to viability, there could be no bans on abortion? But second of all, if you get rid of the viability line, it's not entirely clear how much of Roe is left. 
I mean, someone has to decide where is the line. And if it's if the court isn't going to say that we're going to set the line at viability, what does that mean? Does it mean the states get to determine when the fetus is viable? Could a state say that the or could a state say that it's going to ban abortions after the first minute? Of pregnancy. Right. So, you know, this rigid line that there is this time period, you can ban abortion after this, you can't do it before it, is the core of the abortion right. And if you take that away, it's not clear to me what, how much is left. And it's so complicated, obviously, where they still have to hear the arguments, they have to take their time and make their decision. There's, there's a lot still yet to be happened. But when we're looking at things, Justice Anthony Kennedy was so key in upholding Roe v. Wade. He's retired now. We know the lean of the court now the leans more conservative. They have this precedent of not really overruling past precedent and uh, past rulings, but there's all sorts of political implications. You know, what happens if they do overrule it? You know, a lot of people are going to start <laughs> speaking pretty badly about the Supreme Court. There's so much that's going to happen in these decisions. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I mean, this is the most conservative Supreme Court that we have had since the early days of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. Like the last time there was a court that was this right wing, we were in the middle of the Great Depression. So we don't know quite yet how far these justices are going to go. But I'm anticipating that they're probably going to go pretty far. And, the, you know, the biggest evidence for that is the fact that, you know, this particular case out of Mississippi involves a, a ban on abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. There's another law that probably a lot of people have heard of, SB8, the Texas abortion ban, which bans abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. And the Supreme Court has allowed that unconstitutional law to go into effect. They have said, even though Casey is still technically good law, and even though prior to viability, people have an absolute right to terminate a pregnancy, they have allowed this six-week ban, which clearly violates the rule in Casey, to go into effect. And I just can't imagine why the court would do that unless it intends to overrule Casey. Right. And the distinction is very important, right? If they do overrule Roe v. Wade, let's say there's a dozen states that have these trigger laws you mentioned in the article that will basically automatically ban almost all abortions if they overrule it. So getting those specific words, if that's the way they rule, is supremely important. Yeah, I mean, it does matter whether the court uses the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, because as you said, a lot of states have these trigger laws where the minute the court says those words, abortion is abandoned, is banned in the state. But I wouldn't exaggerate too much how much that distinction between a case that explicitly overrules Roe and a case that really finds a backhanded way to eliminate abortion right. If you don't have a right to an abortion, you don't have a right to an abortion. You know, if the court hands down some extremely complicated, you know, lawyered within an inch of its life decision that doesn't use the words Roe v. Wade is overruled, but that erects a bunch of procedural barriers that make it impossible for anyone to bring an abortion suit. That's still basically the same thing as overruling Ralph. Right. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. All right, thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.